You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Crepe, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Uh, thanking you once again for uh, joining us uh, for another edition of the podcast as the regular season comes to a close for the Ducks. Obviously a very disappointing loss for Oregon and you got to call it exactly what it was for uh, it's not just for Oregon's perspective or from their perspective, but uh, in general, that is a stunning collapse. It is an absolutely incredible collapse. That doesn't discredit Oregon State and what it did to stay in the game and to capitalize on the multitude of errors and mistakes uh, and self-inflicted errors and uh, miscues and penalties and you name it that Oregon committed. But it is bordering on the impossible to find a scenario in which a team is plus three in turnover margin. And I realize that comes with a huge caveat and that plus three, but there's a block punt plus three, but there's a fumbled punt where they don't count as turnovers per se, but obviously they effectively were to say nothing of the failures on fourth downs, particularly the fourth and one inside Oregon territory. So I realize that the plus three turnover is a little bit of a misleading statistic. But when you combine that with less than 100 yards passing allowed and an Oregon State offense that we knew the entire season was one-dimensional, had no ability to throw the football, and to know full well what's coming and have no ability to stop it, when this was on paper – Defensively, Oregon, one of its only areas of strength, if if there is any, outside of Christian Gonzalez's ability to cover and, and man coverage, if there is a particular strength of the defense, it, it was and had been stopping the run to allow over 250 yards rushing, 6.2 yards of carry, and over 7 yards of carry in the second half to a team that lost its lead running back in the middle of the second half and gave up on throwing the football to lose and not just lose in general to blow a 21 point lead to a team that is structured that way offensively. As I say, it borders on the impossible. So that is both a credit to Oregon state for managing to accomplish what it did, despite its deficiencies 
and injury and whatnot. And also further underscores exactly how bad this blown lead was for Oregon. Now you could say also for the big picture, as I said, after the Washington game, well, that, you know, that kind of an outcome, that kind of a game, high scoring, down to the wire, that could be good for a rivalry, you know, for somebody who has invested in it as, as fans are. You could kind of sort of say the same thing about this, but that's, to me, that's not what Oregon fans should be taking from this um, by any stretch of the imagination. And again, I, it doesn't matter to me who wins or who loses. I, I'm a totally neutral party here. This was a hard-to-fathom and hard-to-wrap-your-brain-around sort of a collapse and loss lead. And the shame of it and the areas that make it, I'm sure, all the more frustrating to everyone uh, in the HDC uh, and everyone who's uh, far more vested in it by way of the outcome is that these are areas that Oregon knew not just this past week going into the game, but knew all season were areas of grave concern and weakness. And that being special teams specifically, and then to the penalties, some of which also came on special teams and other decisions that came on special teams, that stuff where you got to go, how many times can can a coaching staff say it? How many coach? How many times can a coaching staff uh, coach and instruct and say and harp on the same message? To where you have to ask. Everybody wants to point fingers after a loss like this, and there's plenty of fingers to go around and and pointing to go around. But my thing is, is after a while you start to go, not for nothing. Is it strictly student failure? Is teacher failure or? Where does the onus really lie here? Because a coach can't kick the ball for a kicker or a punter. A coach can't make the tackle for a player and do it properly without holding or face mask or whatever the case is. Or run a route for a receiver or throw a ball for a quarterback or whatever the case may be. Whatever the instance may be. Sooner or later... Players have to take ownership of that too. And I'm sure they have privately, to be clear. But in terms of post-game, you didn't hear from a lot of the players who were most directly involved in some of the most critical and pivotal moments and miscues in the game. Hopefully in the weeks ahead, you may get to hear a little bit of that. But it doesn't change it. Just gives you a little bit of clarity in terms of somebody's thought process or thinking, but then when it starts to get so many days and weeks and months removed, it doesn't really matter anymore. Point is, is this game was given away. This game was sealed. It was over. 21 points with 20 minutes to go, 17 points, one play into the fourth quarter. Game's supposed to be over. And the only reason why it's not is because Kickoff coverage, which had been poor most of the season. It started to look a little bit better when Andrew Boyle was knocking balls for touchbacks and Oregon's numbers there started to improve rather dramatically over the course of the season. One thing, it was not the most pressing of issues, but one thing we didn't get to after the game was Cam Lewis actually kicked off on uh, the kickoff after his field goal. 
and uh, the, the last organ kickoff of the game. Boyle had handled it before that. I, in going back watching it, I couldn't identify and discern if, if something had happened to Boyle. There had been a game where something did happen. Uh, I think he might have tweaked something. So Lewis took over. And that's not blaming um, Camden Lewis for the fact that the kickoff didn't end in a touchback. But point is, is it doesn't. It's returned. When teams have returned kickoffs against Oregon this season, it has usually not gone so well. And lo and behold, Oregon State gets a 49-yard return that's added with 15 yards for a face mask. Well, how do you start and get an instantaneous response to a 17-point deficit and trim it down to 10? Well, if you give up 65 yards, that's a start. Anything thereafter is, is you know, pretty simple. And the punts, I'm not going to belabor the point about punting because I think we've probably talked about it here before. How it was an area and a position that was very much up for grabs all season, that there was competition all season, that there was uncertainty all season. And as I wrote after um, after the game on, on, I can't remember, it was Sunday, Monday, whatever, earlier in the week, uh, in, in fairness to Alex Bales, uh, he didn't sign up for this. He didn't come to Oregon to compete for the punting job. Now, he gets the job because he gets an opportunity to compete for it because nobody else can take the proverbial bull by the horns and secure it. So you go out there, you got to do it. But in fairness to him, this was not what he was here for. So, yes, he had a very rough day. And you feel for him as you would any player who's in that spot, because they're not going out there trying to fumble. And the block punt wasn't his fault. The line of scrimmage was basically no blocking. Oregon State's Oregon State rushed the punt, and, and there was almost no line of defense at all. Not up front, not on the line of scrimmage. On the uh, uh, personal protectors and the protector line of three guys in the back, yeah, but they, they were grossly outnumbered. And there was just zero effort on the line of scrimmage to attempt to hold off a rush and, and credit to Oregon State they made a big play but for all of those who are going to uh, believe me we'll get to the fourth down decision making but for all those who want to blast the decision making on fourth down you know the punting issues or the uh, frankly the the punt that was blocked was in an area of the field where you want to talk about oh landing's now hyper aggressive really I mean they, they had a punt blocked in an area of the field that ordinarily you'd say, did they think about going for it, potentially? So I don't think that's, like I say, we'll get, we'll get to the fourth down. But, but, but again, Bales has a tough day. The block was not his fault. The fumble, okay, again, yes, obviously. Uh, got to catch it, got to execute. I put it much more on the entire unit. The fact that they could not get consistency from the punting position all season, and it comes home to roost in a absolutely devastating way and completely costs the game. But it wasn't only that area of special teams where there was the kickoff return plus the 15 yards. There was the kickoff return with a short kickoff return cut in half by a holding penalty. There was the kickoff return that Chris Hudson lets the ball land in the field of play 
rather than going to catch it and signaling for a fair catch. So now he's forced to return and barely gets any yardage. Those are things that all those things happened outside of the block punt. That happened earlier in the game, but all those other things happened in the final quarter. And you wonder how a team who throws for less than 100 yards and only runs the ball exclusively, particularly in the fourth, and who is behind by three in turnover margin, comes back and wins a game. Well, you do all those things combined with the fourth down failures, and yeah, you're going to lose a football game. Yes. Now, to the fourth down decision-making, because that was a talking point for folks after the Washington game and once again after this one. And I understand certainly the commonality because, hey, major fourth down decision inside your own territory late in the game. What do you do? And it ends up completely flipping the game against Washington. And in this case, uh, I wouldn't say it was the thing that completely flipped the game. There was plenty of things already heading in that direction. But be that as it may. How can you really, after everything that had happened on punt team throughout the course of the day, and not just the course of the day, the course of the quarter, how can you really objectively criticize Lanning for wanting to go on fourth and one from Oregon's 29? To me, there's only a couple of outcomes. He's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. If he punts... And there's another issue. Everybody's killing him for why in the world did you punt? Didn't you know? Didn't you be, haven't you been paying attention? You can't punt today. If you go out there and put another punter in there and say, hey, Alex, we understand it's just not your day. Send out Adam Barry or send out Ross James and, and let one of the other guys give it a crack. If something goes on wrong there to a guy who hasn't punted all day, now you're entrusting the game in their hands. All right. Even if you stick with any of them and they manage to execute a punt just average. Oregon State's getting the ball somewhere around its own 25 to 30, if we're being generous. Could be around its own 35 or 40. Field position helps, don't get me wrong, but my point is, is that the only way you're not crushing Lanning on the fourth and one decision is if they go for it and move the sticks, it would have happened so fast. Plenty of things would have happened thereafter, which who knows? I mean, do they, I'm not going to say they're not winding the clock the whole way. There's still 10 minutes to go, but do they go all the way down and score? Do they add to the lead? Do they turn it over? Do they? I don't know. But it's going to be a play kind of lost in the annals if they just convert. Or if they punt and they punt successfully. My point is, is statistically speaking, one of those things was far more likely to occur. And that was converting on fourth down on one, which virtually any team in America is more likely than not to convert on fourth and one. First off, second off, if Oregon's numbers particularly were that way. And yes, even against a stout run defense in Oregon State, Oregon had had success. And frankly, if Bo Nix doesn't keep the ball and just hands it off, 
they probably get at least the one yard. There are areas to criticize by way of play calls on fourth downs, not just that one or on the decision by Nix that he admitted was a bad decision. But there's more than that. I thought there were things schematically that Oregon was doing offensively that were just different than they had done before. And I'm not saying that like you can only stick to what you do because then you're predictable that way. But I thought areas and things that they usually try to create some level of chaos and some level of um, confusion to a defense that they just weren't doing. And they had some slow developing plays on fourth downs and some plays that just weren't going to just, I didn't think really had any chance of success. I'm talking about some of the earlier fourth downs, the uh, end around the jet sweep from Troy Franklin to go wide rather than again, a pretty short distance ahead. Uh, The sack on fourth down where yes, Oregon state's pressure gets home, but, I mean, you basically have to set up a. You have to call something there, there where if a blitz is coming, he's got to be able to get rid of the ball really quickly. And if man defense is on the outside, then you've got to just go on a timing route where it's it's catch and throw and get it out. And I don't think they really set it up terribly well in that regard. But those fourth downs aren't the decisions that people are going to harp on. They're going to harp on fourth and one. Well, given what had happened on special teams, you would be more confident either trotting a punter out there who was already having a brutal day and a unit that wasn't having a good day or going to a different punter who hadn't done anything all day and saying, just just give me a 35, 40-yard punt anywhere. Just, just give me that. For those who feel more confident, oh, and by the way, there's still 10 minutes to go and our defense hasn't stopped anything, if you're saying it from the, you know, from the coaching staff perspective. That, I, I, I mean, to each their own, but as a neutral observer, I can't sit here and say it is an egregious decision to go on fourth and one in that situation. I can't. Because to me, statistically, Every analytic, every measure, everything that you've done offensively all season shows that you're going to be more likely than not to convert. Not saying it's a guarantee, but more likely than not. And on a day where, again, your punt game was having a brutal day. Picking up one yard, you should feel pretty confident in that. And quite frankly, to the point... To the point that if you can't get it, that you could live with the outcome the other direction. Given that there was still nine and a half minutes to go. And yes, Oregon State takes the lead. And what? Are we going to conveniently forget that Oregon also drove all the way down the field and got the goal to go to potentially go ahead and win anyway after the failed fourth fourth down? So... I, I can't look at that decision and say, how dare Dan Lanning go for a fourth and one from Oregon's 29? Because to me, the process of it, which to me is what has to be evaluated, not just the outcome, I don't think the process behind it was wrong. I thought the play call may not have been great. <laughs> I thought some other things about it may not have been ideal. I'm not sure that they had to go no huddle and uh, with the, the speed with which the after what was a spectacular throw on third and eight from Knicks to Irving down the sideline, which of all the plays that get lost in the game, 
that it's totally unjust that that play gets lost because my goodness, what a throw that was and catch for that matter. But be that as it may, they go to the line and they're going for it instantly. And all right, a bad decision on the read. And what can you do? But you still have another chance. There's still ample time. They do drive the field. And when you get inside goal to go, oh, well, it's predictable. Yeah, it's predictable. Guess what? They've been really good when predictable inside that formation. And I'm not going to kill them for being predictable. You mean to tell me that if Oregon State were in goal to go, what were they going to do? They were going to run a lot of uh, naked bootlegs? No. What did they do when they had goal to go? Run. Line up with their strength and push the quarterback forward. (laughs) Let the running back run forward. One or the other. Yeah, well, Oregon was trying to do that. Didn't necessarily get all the success it wanted. All right, fourth and three. And they missed the pass, and that's that. But I don't look at the fourth down decision-making as problematic as many fans do. And I understand why fans look at it that way, but I'm I'm laying out the case for why I don't, personally. Because I think there's more behind it, both contextually and statistically. And I don't look purely on outcomes. To, I do look at the play calling more than I do the uh, the decision in the, in the process to, to go for it in the first place. I thought that offensively, they were obviously very, very productive as a whole. But that they were probably too reliant on only a couple of players. That, yes, for as big a day as Chase Coda has, and, and Troy Franklin got turned to quite a good bit, that... When you took those two guys out of it and the two running backs out of it, and yes, I realize Jordan James ends up with nine carries because they did a lot of goal line stuff throughout the course of the game, but you take out Whittington, Irving, Coda, and Franklin, and hardly anybody else really got involved in this game offensively for Oregon. And I thought that was a big mistake. I thought that was a big mistake. I thought that they missed... Some major opportunities. Some of them were, were self-created misses. Look, they they connected on a deep pass to to Terrence Ferguson, who broke free for 53 yards, and Knicks missed him on a huge, huge pass breakup for Oregon State's defense. Enormous. But he could have floated it out there, and it, in all likelihood, Ferguson is going for no less than 50. He may have gone for 80 yards and a touchdown. There was only one player to beat, and Oregon had guys downfield potentially to block and knock him out of the way. But they didn't target, in my opinion, the rest of the tight end core basically at all, almost at all. Uh, Chris Hudson was only targeted twice. I don't think that the ball got around to other guys nearly enough in this game. And to to areas where I thought that Oregon had some uh, matchup advantages, potentially. I don't think they necessarily exploited them. Still end up with a whole bunch of yards and whatnot. But like I say, I just don't think they fully exploited certain areas. But that's neither here nor there either. Ultimately, this game comes down to the areas of greatest efficiency that you knew were deficiencies. Special teams, specifically punting, and defensively, 
even though on paper it looked like at times this was a solid run defense, those who were paying attention knew it was propped up a little bit by some either weaker opponents or teams who, frankly, just like to pass the ball a whole lot more. Or because their pass defense had been so poor that why in the world would some teams bother to run against them when they can pass and be that much more prolific? For example, Washington. Why would Washington ever bother running against Oregon when it, it, it was able to throw at will? Why, why would they even bother? Well, you know, if we go yards per game, oh, well, Washington only ran for 114 yards. Yeah, at 5.2 yards a carry. That's where I say if you drilled into some of the numbers through the course of the season about Oregon's run defense, it was kind of propped up and a little bit inflated in terms of how, quote-unquote, good it was. And in a game against a team who is extremely efficient, very good at churning out tough yards, has an offensive line that has way overshot its uh, individual abilities for years. When you play a team like that in Oregon State, yeah, they're going to be able to churn out some yards. And lo and behold, yeah, 268 and five touchdowns later. So to me, in the big picture, rather than just getting to every little point in the game, but these are certainly the main areas to, to hit on for sure. As we get to the end of the regular season, and now we're heading into, obviously, the transfer portal will officially open. The window will officially open on uh, Monday. And... I'm not sure that there are a lot of college football fans who are really ready for, emotionally ready for what that day may bring for anybody, for just the sport in general, because I think it's what what, what was happening before over the course of a full offseason is now just going to be condensed to a short period of time. So that's why I say that. I'm not trying to sound alarm bells about any individual player or program. I'm just saying collectively, I think it's going to be a lot for people to handle, be that as it may. There's that. There's going to be a new offensive coordinator. There's changes. All right. We'll obviously get into it even more in the offseason once we get through a bowl game and see where Oregon goes and whether it's the Holiday Bowl or Vegas Bowl or maybe another option, potentially. To me, in the big picture, as we start to evaluate the totality of this season, objectively, I don't personally sit here and say this boy what an incredibly successful season nine and three and seven and two in pac-12 play and not playing for the pac-12 championship when you inherited one of the more talented rosters in college football when oregon was favored in every game it played except against georgia and then until hours before kickoff against oregon state Whereas a one point line anyway. To end up at nine and three with two fourth quarter collapses against your two biggest rivals, to not play for a conference championship game, to be in the playoff conversation twice, and then to not only not end up in that and cost yourself that by losing to rivals, and cost yourself a conference championship opportunity 
by losing to rivals. But to say that this is a team that, what, they aspire to play in the Vegas Bowl? And this is a year where the Vegas Bowl is actually a matchup that could be quite good <laughs> where they're playing an SEC team, a Pac-12 SEC matchup in a bowl game for the first time in 35, 36 years. But this is what this program is aspiring for? This is Really? If we, if we want to wind the clock back to July and August, this is what this fan base was hoping for and shooting for? I don't think so. Now, there are plenty of places where 9-3 and three and 7-2 and two would be celebrated and and there'd be all these attaboys and bonuses around. What a year. But 9-3, and three, where five wins came against teams that are downright awful. Multiple teams who have changed head coaches and or coordinators. And a 2-2 two and two record against the top half of the conference and you didn't even play the first place team. And you deprived yourself of your own opportunity to play the first place team because of the two losses. Yeah, sorry. I, I don't sit here and say that was some unbelievable scale of success. No, I don't. Objectively, I think one half of the ball was very successful. I thought Oregon's offense was and has been very successful over the course of the season. Go back to last offseason. That was a major question. What was it going to look like? Hey, you got a young coordinator, first time completely calling the plays with full autonomy on offense. What's it going to look like? What's Dillingham going to do? Oh, they're bringing in Bo Nix. Is he going to win the job? Is he being handed the job? Is this a true competition? Is Ty Thompson going to get a fair shake? What are they going to do with this? How are the running backs going to... Every which question of the offense. All fair. All objectively fair, realistic. Plenty of uncertainty. Plenty of areas to pose questions. But you knew that the greatest strength on the entire team was the offensive line. It proved to be that case. It was all year. So you knew that no matter what was going to happen at running back, that they were going to have some scale of success behind that offensive line. You knew that whoever was going to win the job at quarterback, but probably Knicks, was going to have ample time to throw. And he did. All year. Then it became about vertical passing. and What did that look like? All right. And they delivered that very, very well. Credit to them. And Dillingham obviously gets a head coaching job out of it. And Knicks was one of the most accurate and efficient passers in the country. And if not for the outcomes of the Washington game and the Oregon State game, may very well have been in the thick of the Heisman Trophy conversation. But again, a lot of those numbers came up against just dreadfully bad defenses. But okay, you still got to do it. And he did. Had a huge year. Massive. Tremendous year. All right. But on the other half of the ball, areas where we talked about back in the offseason, there were areas of concern, areas of question, areas of uncertainty. Every single area that was questionable or uncertain, I don't think you got a single answer or positive uptick at all. The entire offseason, who were the shot callers? Where is the pass rush going to come from? Did anybody new emerge? Was there some unbelievable force in that regard from this Oregon defense? DJ Johnson at times made a couple of plays, but was not a consistent threat by any stretch of the imagination. 
even though he ends up leading them statistically. Brandon Dorless played unbelievably well at times, but can't do it alone. And the interior of the defensive line probably closed the season with a couple of solid performances, far better than were there earlier in the year. But again, I still say, yeah, but what does it get you when there's not enough pass rush to disrupt the passing attack against Washington and there's not enough penetration and disruption in the backfield to derail a one-dimensional run attack from Oregon State? And a linebacking core who, on paper, go back to the offseason, all anybody would say from this fan base was how absolutely loaded, talented, no concerns, no issues. Hey, especially now that they're healthy, this linebacking core is going to be no problem, no question. Everything's hunky-dory. Well, Noah Sewell's production got cut in half. I'm not putting it all on him, but I'm saying his production got cut in half. Justin Flo was not an everyday starter. Jeff Bassa at times played quite nicely. At times had some really rough games, particularly in pass coverage. Keith Brown got some limited opportunities. Jackson LaDuke early in the season and then almost not at all in the second half of the season. So the linebacking core that everybody felt really good about back in the offseason didn't produce anywhere near the level that it had produced that previously. And if you go by historically, uh, Lanning's defenses at Georgia, defensive backs were not all the leading tacklers. A lot of the work was done by the linebacking core. Well, this defense, that wasn't the case. And then in the secondary, you knew that Christian Gonzalez coming in was going to be a massive addition and a, and a necessary one. And boy, how, how, how much rougher things could have been if not for him. But outside of that, and some play from Brian Addison at times, which, again, I thought he really, he might have been the biggest positive, major positive uptick outside of Gonzalez on defense by way of what were you expecting of him before the year and, t- and then what did he end up delivering? I, I would argue that Brian Addison might be at or near the top of the list, not just for the, the defense, on the entire team. I mean, he, he played way beyond what anybody's expectations could have reasonably been way back in July or August. But you still had questions about who was going to be, where were some of those big plays going to come from? This was a team who still managed to get some takeaways and had takeaways in this game against Oregon State and capitalized on a couple of them. But even when you do that, when your offense and special teams just hand it right back over, it doesn't really make much of a difference. Which brings us lastly, as we wrap up this edition of the podcast, before we get to bowls and get heavier into basketball season and stuff, and I'll touch on that briefly here. But that brings us to, particularly with the transfer portal about to open, and you've already got a couple of Oregon players announcing they intend to transfer with uh, Dante Thornton and Byron Carball Jr. and Jay Butterfield. What that could mean for bowl game preparation, what that could mean for next season. I'm only going to deal with what we know, not speculating about, because for those who don't uh, know in general, I don't make it, uh, I don't make a habit of, of publicly speculating about what 
college players are going to do with their careers. I, I know that that's part of the discourse, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to add to the chaos and uncertainty in anybody's life by just publicly speculating. Well, this person could transfer. That person could transfer based on conjecture. Uh, that's you know, if I have some, if I know something and can report something, then I'm going to go know it and report it, and that's that. But I'm not going to go through eight, an 85 man roster and say who's who's going, and who's staying, because I think so. You know, if I know something, then I, I go ahead. For a bowl game, uh, obviously, I think the departure of Thornton has the most significant impact of the three thus far, uh, because obviously he was heavily in the rotation and was starting to contribute significantly towards the end of the season. But, uh, you know, Carball obviously hadn't played since week two. So on the field, in terms of a bowl game, that doesn't have a particular consequence in the moment. In terms of next season, it does, uh, you know, thin the room. But you also have... Uh, Dante Dowdell coming in, so as a whole, the running back room is still going to have the same uh, same number at the moment. Quarterback, I know that's where everybody will focus. I'm not speaking on behalf of Bo Nix and what he chooses to do or not. I, I have no idea. So if he chooses to play in a bowl game, he chooses to play. If he chooses to opt out, well, then you know obviously Ty Thompson will go in the bowl game. Beyond that, I, I don't know what to tell you right now. We'll find out more in the week ahead. What can I say? In terms of next season, I could say much of the same. I'm not going to sit here and speak for Bo. If I get something and I learn enough on a concrete level <laughs> to be able to report something, I certainly will. Whether that's to return, whether that's to transfer, whether that's to uh, stay in the NFL. And I say stay in the NFL draft because just as a reminder to everybody, just as it was a year ago, all of the players who would have exhausted and completed their eligibility, if not for the paused eligibility clocks in 2020-21, are automatically entered in the draft. And players who choose to return to college have to tell the NFL they are opting out of the draft. That is the process, once again, for those players. So, Knicks falls in that category. Rodgers falls in that category. Uh, Dorless falls in that category. Several others. So we'll await word from them. But outside of the ones that we know about, as I say, that kind of gets to that. To the positions that I think Oregon has to address most aggressively this offseason, between what they're going to be adding and look to be in line to add via their uh, recruiting class at the moment combined with the transfer portal. Because to me, the portal, the experienced players that you can get via transfer, shore things up, Sooner, faster, they're more physically developed, probably game experience, etc. that can better shore up some things. To me, the three areas of most immediate need are edge rush, whether that's defensive end, outside backer, whoever, which way you want to call it, edge rush. That, to me, should be priority one, two, three, four, and five. I mean, that, that has to be, because without that, the rest of it is is almost irrelevant, but you have to start there. Uh, depending on exactly what Christian Gonzalez chooses to do, you can make a, a strong case for cornerback to be probably third in the overall priority group list. But if Gonzalez chooses to move on uh, to the NFL, which would not be a, uh, would not be outside the realm of plausibility, uh, given the year that he just had, 
then I'd say cornerback becomes an area of significant need immediately. Uh, and you could look to add a player or players there at the cornerback position. They do have three commitments at the cornerback position as a whole, but Caleb Presley, uh, one of the higher-ranked recruits in Oregon's class, is also visiting Washington here uh, this weekend. And the other position to me, which would be second in between the two, would be the wide receiving core. Because in terms of numbers, Oregon had 11 scholarship receivers this season. It's losing Chase Coda, so you're down to 10. You've got uh, Dante Thornton and Seven McGee, who had already left the program. You're down to eight. They've got two commitments, and Ashton Cozart and Jurion Dickey, they get you back to 10. But to me, obviously, you know, Troy Franklin has the scale of success that he's had. Hudson's been productive. But outside of that, you have no proven production. You just don't. Not on a week-to-week basis. And that, to me, is areas that this team has to add uh, multiple bodies to overhaul the receiving core. If you're going to lose Dante Thornton in particular, then, yes, you have to add at the receiving core. Thornton combined with, with Coda completing his eligibility because you just didn't get nearly enough other production from other players. And you have some younger guys in a Kyle Casper and a Justice Lowe who were, you know, they they were freshmen and you know, we'll see what they get by way of opportunity, uh, you know, going into the future and, and development and et cetera, et cetera. But point is, is but if you're trying to find proven productive players for next season right now on paper, Oregon has two in Hudson and Franklin. That's obviously not enough. So the receiving core to me has to be the second priority, the number one priority on offense in the portal and edge rush has to be the number one priority overall, but especially on the defensive side corner would be third. Then you can make, if you want to sit here and make a case for every single position, because how couldn't you? That's I'm sure going to be part of the fun of this for, for many fans when the portal gets as wild as it's about to get next week. I'm sure everybody will go through every single position to make a case for why, why stop anywhere. But to me, the three areas of highest priority, like I say, edge rush, receiver, cornerback, would be all at the top of the list. Anything thereafter is a subsequent conversation. Not saying that you you know you can't walk and chew gum at the same time, but to me, those are the areas that they absolutely must address because they have to. And, and I think you've seen already there have been a couple of offers that have gone out, one, two, a uh, receiver who's already in there, I think from the FCS level who had a really huge year. Um, I believe there was an offensive lineman as well. So we'll see in the days ahead and next week once the portal opens. I don't think you're going to get a lot of instantaneous, oh, they're in the portal, and then within an hour somebody's already figured out where they're going. I don't know. Obviously, it's going to be quite literally hundreds upon hundreds, if not well over a thousand. I I would be mystified if it wasn't well over a thousand players nationally. Um, I personally think it's probably going to be closer to 2000 myself. Um, if I had to bet on it, um, and by say, when I say closer, I mean like, are we talking 1200 or are we talking 1600? I think it's going to be higher on the higher end. And that's just going to be part of the process now going forward. That's going to be part of college football going forward thing again. And these were things that over the course of a whole off season, 
the number was going to get pretty close to that regardless. Now it's just happening in a in a confined window of time. So I don't think it's reinventing the system. I don't think it's a massive change necessarily compared to what it was even just a year ago. I think we're just looking at it a little bit of a different time um, and a compressed time period combined with, yeah, the con- confluence of the transfer portal window and NIL and for all intents and purposes, free agency will create some very, very interesting conversations in the month of December all across college football. Yes, all those things true. Nothing revolutionary there. I'm hardly the first to suggest any of it. At the same time, while all those things are true, have been true, and will remain true, we haven't yet seen this doomsday scenario where there's some uh, completely out of left field program that either is just dreadful on the field, has no results, but they've got all this NIL money suddenly, and now they're just landing and procuring all the players because they're they're just going out and buying everybody, and that's that, and you know who cares? You haven't seen that. You know the, the teams who are at or near the top in this year's recruiting rankings are the teams who were basically at or near the top of the recruiting rankings historically. There isn't some rogue outside actor who's suddenly come flying in who ordinarily wouldn't be anywhere near that area. No. The the top players are still going to the most successful programs. We'll see what that looks like in the portal because it's going to be, like I say, more at one, one time as opposed to a little bit more spread out time-wise. But I'm not sure that it's going to be as as uh, sheer chaos uh, as some are uh, uh, suggesting, other than just the sheer volume of players. But we'll see. With that, we uh, wrap up this edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. We'll take a look ahead to uh, the bowl matchup once we get that on Sunday. We'll take a look ahead to that next week, uh, particularly well, in general, but particularly if it's the Vegas Bowl, that would be a really quick turnaround. That game's on the 17th. Uh, so it could be a SEC matchup and, and an NFL stadium and everything else, but that game could be really quick if it ends up being Vegas. If it's the holiday, you have till the 28th and some of the other games a little bit later in the month of December. So we'll get to that next week. We'll take a little bit more of a look into basketball as the season's gotten underway for both of those teams. We'll get into that in more detail going forward in the weeks ahead as we shift entirely to basketball season. But start of Pac-12 play for the Oregon men. Thursday night against Washington State, uh, the Oregon women have uh, both teams have had uh, thin rosters and thin lineups, uh, due in part to injury. The men in a, a far, even more compromised position um, as a whole, but but uh, they are they are getting healthier and could have uh, several players coming back in the days and weeks ahead uh, to where when they really get going into Pac-12 play closer to January when it's the full schedule at that point. They could be in a pretty advantageous position for the women. It looks like it's probably going to be at least several more weeks before uh, Kennedy Basham could come back. But having said that, uh, they're playing pretty well. And yeah, they've ended up on, you know, yes, there was a loss to North Carolina. And, you know, not not to say there's there's, uh, moral victories and things, but the way they played that game shows you that this team, even with 
a relatively thin lineup, even having lost some of the players they lost, um, including Sedona Prince right before the season started, that this team can come together and play together in a way that you weren't sure they necessarily could until you actually saw it. You saw it in that game, even in a loss, to where you can legitimately say now this Oregon women's team could once again be a legitimate contender in the Pac-12 again this season. And they would have been a better team in the league as a whole, but I'm not sure they were going to be considered, all right, if Stanford's the runaway favorite, sure. I'm not sure they were going to be in the conversation for two or three this season. I really don't. But what they showed you in that game against North Carolina was that they are capable of playing together as a unit and have the talent to, yeah, to go toe-to-toe with some really good teams. And they might very well be able to go toe-to-toe with everybody in the Pac-12 to the point to where they can contend for and push for and stay in the hunt for uh, a regular season league title and contend for a no less than a top four seed uh, in the conference tournament, and then whatever that means for the NCAA tournament. So again, we'll get more into basketball season in the weeks ahead. Thanks again to everybody who already subscribes and whatnot to the podcast. For those who don't, a reminder, you can subscribe by making it very simple to the little add button and the subscribe button or whichever which you know whichever platform you're on that way it goes into your uh, feed automatically give us a five-star review and like and all those things so that way more people can find it as well and with that we wrap up this edition and we will see you next week <laughs>